to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh, a place to chow down on topics relevant to writers of all kinds. Hello, and welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh. I'm Marissa, and this is my podcast in which I talk about a wide variety of writing and reading-related topics that up until about two months ago, came out on a weekly basis, but now comes out every two weeks. And the reason for that is that at the beginning of August, I started a new podcast on Victorian history, lesser known aspects of Victorian history, you might say, or at least if not lesser known, they don't seem to get as much coverage as the ones you studied in traditional history classes. The most recent episode is like a is like a primer on death and uh, mourning customs. Of course, this is a topic that I feel I could discuss on more than one episode of that show. So this most recent episode is just kind of an overview of basic views on death and mourning and um, just like an introduction to those customs. And I'll be uh, covering specific customs in more depth, not death, depth, in future episodes. So, I mean, I think that's going well. I really, really like history and the research. Um, And I'm going to have a link to that show in the notes for this episode. uh, If you want to go listen to that, they're not very long episodes. Again, I just try to do a basic overview for now. But it's a lot of fun and it's a little different from what I do here. Although I do enjoy what I do here as well, uh, covering writing and reading related topics. Usually I do a lot of research and writing for this podcast as well. This week's episode, I want to apologize in advance if I ramble a little bit. I did do research and I took pretty copious notes, I think, but... I didn't write them in a formal script form like I I usually do. So I want to apologize if I ramble a little bit here and there. But um, what I wanted to do this week was I kind of wanted to do something a little different. I wanted to take a topic that I don't know very much about and learn about it so that I could present it to you in case you don't know very much about it. Now, I did say on Twitter a few days ago that I do this occasionally. I like to, um, I don't consider myself an expert. I, I, I've said that before at the beginning of a number of episodes, and I'm going to reiterate that toward the beginning of this one as well. I'm not an expert on anything, but there are some topics that I know better than others. And then sometimes I like to take something that I actually know very little about or that I think I know very little about and do some research and learn about it and then try to explain it to you. Because what I've heard is that's actually a great way to learn something is to kind of absorb it as much as you possibly can develop your own understanding of it, and then teach it to other people. That's actually a good way to teach it. The thing is, while I was doing research on the topic of this week's episode, I found out that if I didn't exactly know what this was as a type of poetry, I did know examples of it that I studied in classes. So it's it turns out that it's something that I hadn't heard of the style of poetry 
before I started doing research for this episode, but then I actually could think of specific examples, which I will get into in a few minutes. So what I'm going to talk about this week is ekphrastic poetry. I think that's the pronunciation, but again, this is brand new to me, so I could be mispronouncing it. But to me, it looks like ekphrastic poetry. And a very short definition of ekphrastic poetry is that it's poetry that's based on another work of art. Now, this is often a painting, but it can also be based on sculptures, objects, architecture, etc. And in an article that I'm going to include a link to in the notes for this episode called Ekphrastic Poetry, When Art Kindles Literature, Hannah Huff mentions that according to the OED, which is the Oxford English Dictionary, ekphrastic is, quote, employing, characterized by, or relating to a literary device in which a painting, sculpture, or other work of visual art is described in detail, end quote. So there's a little more of a longer definition for you about ekphrastic poetry. Some examples, as I was just saying, these are ones that as soon as I saw them mentioned, I was like, oh, I, I know about this. Uh, Homer describing Achilles' shield in the Iliad is a good example. Or John Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn, something that I've read for numerous literature classes, maybe you have as well. Those are examples of ekphrastic poetry. I mean, I'm, I'm most familiar with the John Keats poem. The whole poem is about a Grecian urn. Yeah, so y you should get the idea right there. Now, in a work called Ekphrastic Poetry, Poetry Tea Time notes that in writing an ekphrastic poem, the poet will describe part of the work, quote, and may extend their own thoughts on the work's underlying story or significance, end quote. So, yeah, so I think this is an important point to make before we go any further. The poet is not just describing the artistic work. I mean, otherwise that would be boring probably no matter how good they write. I mean, you can just you can just look at a Grecian urn or a shield or, or something or some other kind of sculpture. Um, I think that's a big takeaway here from this discussion of ekphrastic poetry. In addition to describing the piece and trying to conjure up a vivid image, the poet's also going to try to put their own spin on it. I think that's definitely an important point to make. In an article called What is Ekphrastic Poetry, Jackie Craven kind of expands on this by saying that the poet quote-unquote engages with a work of art by writing this kind of poetry. And she notes that this may also include poems about music or dance. And this is something that I've heard echoed in, or I've read echoed in a number of other sources that I've consulted. It doesn't have to be limited to a visual art form. Maybe it's associated primarily with visual arts because in earlier times, more poetry simply was written about visual objects. But as time went on, poets decided that it could be uh, adapted to music or dance or, I guess, film, whatever medium. Um, Craven also goes into a little more detail, I think, about how 
ekphrastic poetry actually developed. So she notes that the term ekphrastic originates from a Greek expression for description. And she notes that early examples of ancient Greek ekphrastic poetry included many details to, quote, transform the visual into the verbal, end quote. And Craven goes on to say that poets at the time often did this to help audiences kind of see what was going on. Like, not just to see the object, but maybe to see the object in a broader context. So, for example, maybe there might have been battles going on even. So, the work that the poet was describing was kind of like uh, a visual representation of something much larger, maybe a battle or, I don't know, a great famine or something, something like that. That's where the idea of this poetry came about. Basically, the poet was taking this image and trying to help as many people as possible because I've said this before in previous episodes I'll say this again here in earlier times very few people knew how to read or write so what the poet or the person would do would be to create these poems and maybe read them aloud so that the people listening could get a vivid picture of what was going on so that's a little bit more of uh, an understanding of where this type of poetry came from. And Craven further says that there are several types of ekphrastic poetry. So the first type she mentions is actual ekphrasis. And this is about an actual artwork, meaning an artwork that exists in the real world as we know it. Uh, there's also notional ekphraxis, which is about fictional objects. Now, I don't know of a specific example of notional ekphraxis off the top of my head. I mean, I'm really, I'm really kind of just pulling one out of my ass here, if you'll forgive the expression. But say you're writing a series of books, and in the first book, you're describing the protagonist's grandmother's vase. It, this is just a corny example. Like I said, I'm pulling it out of my you-know-where. But just to give you an idea, the poet describes his or her grandmother's vase. And then several books down the line, maybe the protagonist dies and their child comes across some poems that the protagonist wrote when they were a child. And one of them happens to be about their grandmother's vase. That might be an example of notional ekphraxis. So in other words, I don't know if that's a really good example because that poem would probably be in that smaller work of fiction, but that's the best I could come up with right now off the top of my head. So yeah, so a poem about an object that does not really exist in the quote-unquote real world, that would be an example of notional ekphraxis. And then the third type of ekphraxis Ugh. The third type of ekphrastic poetry that Craven mentions is, and this is a good one, unaccessible actual ekphrasis. So what that is, that's about a work that once existed in the real world, but it's been lost or destroyed or 
it's somewhere far away. So going back to what we were just saying about ancient times, say there is a bowl from ancient times that historians believe is somewhere in the world, but they don't know where it is exactly. They can't locate it. Um, but we have a poem that was written 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece or ancient Egypt about it. So that would be an example of unaccessible actual ekphrasis. At the time it was written, it existed, and it may still exist. We may know that it doesn't exist, that it was destroyed, or it may exist, but it's just somewhere far away and nobody knows where it is. So... I think it's good to know that there are several different types because if ekphrastic poetry is something that you might be interested in writing, it's good to know that you have some leeway in the types of poetry that you can write. Um, another point that Craven makes uh, to, to build on that further, uh, ekphrastic poetry can be any form as long as it's about a work of art. So basically... The only guideline to ekphrastic poetry that I can see is that it has to be about another work of art. But it doesn't matter if it's in epic form, if it's in free form, if it's in haiku form. That is open to you, however you want to do that. I think that's great if you'd like to try writing some ekphrastic poems as an exercise. Another article that I'm including a link to called Five Tips for Writing Ekphrastic Poetry by Poet Power Poetry makes another really good point, I think, about ekphrastic poetry. Power Poetry says, quote, creating poetry inspired by art is like having a conversation with the artists or the subject of the works themselves, end quote. It is appealing in a more literary sense. I mean, really, we don't know what was going through a sculptor's or a painter's head when they created a work of art. But ekphrastic poetry, I think, according to this definition here, gives you the opportunity to kind of let your creative juices flow and imagine that if you were able to ask, say, Andy Warhol, somebody I just picked off the top of my head, or Salvador Dali, what they were thinking when they created one of their great works. Again, We'll never know for sure. Even if these artists were alive we pro and we had the opportunity to ask them, we probably wouldn't know for sure. I mean, these artists would probably not want to tell what was going through their mind. I don't know. Maybe Andy Warhol would, but Salvador Dali probably not. Writing this type of poetry kind of is a fun exercise that allows you to imagine, well, if I could talk to Salvador Dali, if I could maybe let Salvador Dali know what I thought when I looked at the persistence of time or whatnot. This is, this is what I would say. This is what I would say. That, I mean, this is, this is great. Again, it helps a writer, I think, get their creative juices flowing. Power Poetry notes that also that it is easier to write these poems if you actually, I think, like the subject or feel more of a pull toward the subject. I think that's an important point to make too because if you decide to write a poem about something because you think 
it's something that's worth writing about, like, say, a very famous statue or a very famous painting, hanging in the Louvre or something like that. But it's not something that you really like. It's more just something that you know maybe is popular. It's probably not going to work as well. For example, I'm going to I'm going to say something here that some of you might judge me for saying this, but I have to be honest. I don't care for the works of the old masters, the paintings um, from the 1400s, the 1500s, things like Rembrandt. I can appreciate what they are as great works of art, but I am not personally drawn to that genre of painting. I don't want to say it's too, it's not modern enough for me, but it's just it it's not something that appeals to me visually. Again, I can appreciate where the old master's style comes from, maybe where their subject matter comes from. I tried a little bit when I read The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. Uh, that novel does talk about some specific examples of paintings from that era. I tried to learn more about that style of painting, and I also I had art history classes. It's just not something I can get enthusiastic about. So if I were to put that aside and say, okay, even though I don't personally care for the paintings of the old masters, I'm going to go to a museum and I'm going to sit down in front of a painting by Rembrandt and try to write a poem about it. I personally don't think I'm going to get very far because appreciation is not going to get my creative juices flowing. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. So if you are going to write this type of poem, I think it's important to do it for something that not even necessarily something you like, but just something you have a strong reaction to. There might be a a painting that has a violent depiction of a battle scene that grosses you out, but you're so grossed out by it that you can't take your eyes off it and you can write maybe an epic length poem on it. That I can totally understand. Maybe you, you dislike it that much, but you have such a strong reaction to, to it that for whatever reason you're, you're drawn to it. That's great. The key is, again, to echo what Power, Power Poetry was saying, I think you really do have to be drawn to it for um, to get anywhere with it. And one other thing Power Poetry says that I think is important is that it might help as well to write in the same space as your subject. So in other words, like I was just saying, maybe to plunk yourself down I don't know about if they'd allow it on the floor of a museum, but maybe there's like a bench in the museum near the painting that you're writing about. You're actually in the same atmosphere as the painting. I'm going to get paranormal for a minute because I watch Ghost Adventures and other paranormal shows. One thing that I hear discussed every so often on those shows is the stone tape theory, which holds basically that if you go in a house, the walls, the floors, the furniture kind of holds an imprint of the people and the spiritual energy that might have occupied the house in past times, past years. I don't see why that can't be the same for great works of art. There might be some kind of energy attached to that art, and by being in close proximity to it, you can pick up on that, and that can actually benefit you in writing 
your ekphrastic poem. You might believe that, you might not believe that, but I think it's definitely something to consider. So yeah, if you can actually write in the same space as the work of art that you're writing about, that's great. There might be cases where you can't. I'm a big fan of Aubrey Beardsley's work. Aubrey Beardsley was a late 19th century British illustrator. I have only seen his works in books and online. I don't know if I'll ever be in close physical proximity to an Aubrey Beardsley print. So for now, I'm going. if I was going to write anything about Aubrey Beardsley's works or about a specific work in particular, I would have to rely on the book or what I see on the internet. You know, it's the kind of thing that if you can do it, great. If not, that's okay too. But definitely if you have the opportunity to be in the same space as the work. I think it can definitely help. So Hannah Huff says some really interesting things about ekphrastic poetry. She doesn't believe that these types of poems need to be tied only to visual works. So again, Huff seems to believe that you can write ekphrastic poetry about a lot of different types of art. And I think that's fantastic. I think that definitely opens up the possibilities of things that you can write about. Huff also points out that, quote, the key to creating engaging ekphrastic poetry is to return to the phrase's roots and set out to describe the work of art in question, whatever it may be in electrifying detail so that the poem amplifies the source, end quote. I think there is a lot there. Um, that goes back to what Craven was saying about the roots of ekphrastic poetry, where it came from, but I think it builds upon that, what Huff is saying, that what you want to do is you want the detail to not only be very descriptive, but you really want it to pop. You really want to, you want to excite the reader's passions, almost in other words, so that they get an idea of what you as the poet were feeling when you were looking at or listening to that work of art. So Huff goes on to give us a list of elements that are commonly found in ekphrastic poems. Again, there's no specific format that an ekphrastic poem has to be in, but there are certain, I think, guidelines that you can adhere to if you're interested in this type of poetry. She mentions lucid detail for one thing that we were just talking about that. Also, poetic response is important. I think we were talking about that as well. You want to show your intellectual or emotional response as the poet, and you want your readers to, by extension, feel that. So you definitely want to describe it in a way that that poetic response comes through. I, I think I'm going to just add this, even though I don't really know if I need to, but I think it's important to add. You don't just want to do like a journalistic neutral rendering of the work. I probably should have said this sooner, but that that's not going to work because that would be like, I, and I'm not going to say that there's no place for a, a neutral detached description anywhere. Again, it might work really well for a newspaper article, but not an ekphrastic poem. And in an ekphrastic poem, 
you have to have a reaction to it and that should come through to the reader. Huff also notices that focus is important in ekphrastic poetry, that the poet should focus on the subjects and that if there are any tangents, really you should keep tangents to a minimum if you use any at all, but if there are any tangents, they should quote, bolster the interpretation of the artistic source rather than distract from it. So in other words, if you have to go off on a tangent, make sure that it leads to something that ultimately helps take the poem to another level, I think. So makes it even more impressive than it would have been. Huff also notes that an ekphrastic poem can include some type of portrait of the artist um, in, in the sense that it kind of draws the writer in so the work almost becomes autobiographical. So I think this is great. This goes back to what we were saying about really that you should be drawn to the piece you're writing about. That will say a lot about you as the writer if you can show that you're being drawn into the piece. In the same vein, Huff says that a portrait of the audience is also an important element of ekphrastic poetry in the sense that poems like this should make clear that they're this type of poem. What that means is it's kind of an understanding that even though the audience is brought along for the ride, so to speak, and to some extent experiencing what the writer is experiencing, at the same time, a good example of a poem of this kind makes it clear to the reader that even though they are part of the experience, they're not getting the whole experience. They're kind of getting a secondhand retelling of that, and the reader understands that. Uh, I think that's what Huff is trying to say by bringing that in. In other words, the reader is meant to be part of the experience, but not to be experiencing it the way the writer originally experienced it, and the reader's aware of this and is okay with that. One more element that Huff mentions is the artwork's derivative. And what that means is, we kind of discussed this already, the artwork must revolve around a source that can be classified as an art form. What Huff does here is kind of brings some degree of intentionality into it in the sense that she says that the poet needs to decide what piece of art they're going to write about. It doesn't really matter how long or how they come about doing it. They just have to pick the piece of art and then they need to sit down and actually write the piece. I don't think she specifically says the word intention here, but I think this is important. If you just start writing and then when you're halfway through the poem, you're like, oh, that painting I saw at the museum last week, I'm going to throw a little bit about that into the poem. That'll really, you know, give it some, some extra oomph, you might say. That could work, I think. I mean, maybe you're writing a poem and you're you know, you're talking about in the poem how humdrum your life's been lately, and then last week you just happened to go to a museum and saw a painting there that you just stood in front of for 20 minutes and you just reassessed your your life while staring into it. 
that might be great in a different type of poem, but that's not going to be an ekphrastic poem. That's kind of something you threw in as an afterthought. Huff really seems to convey the idea here that you need to have the artwork that you're going to write about front and center in your head before you sit down to write it. Again, it doesn't really matter how long, although it might help if you view the work or listen to the piece of music very soon before you sit down to write. You just have to have it in a central place in your head so that you could focus on it, so that you can really concentrate on what that work of art means to you and what it might have meant to the writer and what they were trying to communicate to the people of their time or their community or whatnot. I think that's a really good point. This is something that needs to be stressed, I think. The work can't be thrown in as an afterthought. I'm not going to say that there's never a time and a place for that in a poem, but not in ekphrastic poetry. Ekphrastic poetry, you really need to be focused on the work that you're writing about. So one more piece that I consulted is poets.org's article called Notes on Ekphraxis. They mentioned some potential disadvantages, not to dissuade you from writing this type of poem, but just some things to be aware of. Uh, one thing that they mentioned is that the comparison between a great original artwork and a poem that's inspired by that artwork, that's kind of difficult to navigate. In other words, if you have a great Matisse painting, I'm a fan of Matisse's work, your poem, no matter how good a poet you are, most likely is going to pale in comparison to Matisse's work. I'm sorry, I'm a fan of Matisse again. I don't think any poet, even the poets that I happen to love, I don't think even Baudelaire could have done justice to one of Matisse's paintings describing it in a poem. I just don't think that's possible. When I see Matisse, I don't think I've ever been in the same room as a Matisse, but every time I see Matisse's works online or in a book, I'm blown away. Your poem probably is not going to compare to the artwork, even if the artist is not up there with Matisse. Your poem probably is not going to have the same impact. But knowing that, that should not dissuade you from writing it. It should, however, inspire you to offer something that maybe the painting cannot. So in other words, maybe the painting is not accessible to your readers, but even though your poem is not up there with that painting, you can offer something to the readers that they can take away from it. That's, I think, what Poets.org is trying to say here. So, and again, it's not trying to dissuade you from writing about a phenomenal work of art, but it's trying to inspire you to give the reader something extra in your poem. Because otherwise, why would they read it when they can just look at the work online or go to a museum to see it? I think that's definitely a good point. Poets.org says also it's difficult enough to write well about an artwork in prose. So for example, if you were writing a scholarly article about a Matisse painting or a, uh, a Turner painting or something like that, 
that would be difficult. It's not saying it can't be done, but it's it's difficult. It's something you really need to think about and maybe write several drafts before you put it in your final version. It, that's difficult in prose, again, so it's going to be even more difficult in poetry, is what Poets.org is trying to say. Because poetry is difficult for some of us to write. Some of us, I, I'm one of them. I communicate better in prose. So again, this is not something to dissuade you from writing this type of poem. This is just something that Poets.org is kind of, I think, trying to inspire you to think about before you try to do it. So in other words, I think they're saying here that the poet might be better off maybe not trying to address the work as a whole, but to give like a partial account of the work, maybe maybe one aspect of it, maybe part of it. If it's a huge, huge painting, like maybe the size of a wall or a mural or something like that, you might just want to focus on a small part of it. I mean, I've definitely seen murals that were very detailed and they spanned the entire side of a building. And it's really not possible if you're only walking by the mural for like a few seconds to take in everything. So maybe you might just want to focus on a specific corner of that mural. Maybe there's a picture of like one or two people or an animal in the mural that you just want to focus on that one animal. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, knowing what you're up against, knowing the greatness of the work that you're probably writing about, don't feel ashamed if you want to just address a small part of that. If it's a great work of art, even a small part of it can probably be worth many, many words. So if, if you just want to focus on one part of a large painting or a mural, there's nothing wrong with that if you can say a lot about it. I think that's, uh, I think that's very important. And Poets.org says that there are advantages to writing this type of poem as well, which I think we've gone over, uh, or at least we've alluded to some of these advantages. But this is a good one. An ekphrastic poem can help you find a unique way to view visual artwork. So whether or not you even want to write about visual artwork in the future, familiarizing yourself with this type of poetry can definitely broaden your horizons as a writer, whether you're a poet or whether you're a prose writer. I think this is very important because, and this is another controversial opinion, but I'm going to bring this up now. Sometimes in the Twitter writing community, I see people just writing about the process of writing their books. And maybe there are some people that find that interesting, but others like me were kind of left cold by that. I don't really care what a writer's process is like, and they're going to bore me pretty quickly if all they talk about is writing. If they talk about going to mu to a museum once in a while, or maybe looking up great artworks online, or music they're passionate about, that is what is going to draw me in. That is what is going to make me want to follow those writers if I'm not following them already. Even if they barely say anything about their current work in progress, if they can show me that they're passionate about a work of art or a form of art, 
that's going to draw me in. That's going to make me want to read that writer. I've mentioned him on so many episodes of this podcast, but I think this is one of the reasons why Stephen King is so fantastic. And if you follow his Twitter, you probably enjoy a lot of his posts. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you definitely should. Because Stephen King will write about a lot of different things on his Twitter. He'll write about his pets. He will talk about politics, which, I mean, I happen to believe a lot of the same things Stephen King does politically. Maybe some of you don't. He also writes about music. He writes about Netflix series that he's currently watching. And I know that even though Stephen King writes copious amounts, um, I just started his latest novel, Billy Summers, this morning. I think this is the second novel he's put out this year. Stephen King writes and writes and writes, but he also has other things that he's passionate about, and he will talk about them on his Twitter, and he will convey that passion to those millions of us who follow him. That's the kind of writer I enjoy following, not somebody who just says, oh, I'm sitting down to write now. You know, I'm not saying that there's never a time that you shouldn't mention that on Twitter, just not all the time, because that's not very interesting. That's all I had to say about ekphrastic poetry. Again, I am so sorry if I rambled. It's funny because every time I don't have a script, I end up rambling and my episodes turn out to be a lot longer. But again, this is something that even though I didn't think I knew much about when I came across it online and I said, oh, ekphrastic poetry, I have no idea what that is. It turns out that the topic of ekphrastic poetry is itself is something that I felt I could engage with. And hopefully um, I've inspired you to maybe think about ekphrastic poetry you've read in classes in the past. And the best of all would be to inspire you to maybe try your hand at writing an ekphrastic poem of your own. So yeah, so that's what I have to say about that for now. I would love to hear what you think. Please email me at marissadellefarfale at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at at marissad13 and on Instagram at marissadf13 where I don't say very much about writing. I don't really on my Twitter either, but I really don't say much about my writing on Instagram. You could also buy me a coffee if you would like at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13. And if you buy me a coffee, I will give you a shout out in an upcoming episode to show how grateful I am for you. And finally, I would really appreciate it if you could rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening that will allow you to rate podcasts because that will help a lot more people find out about this show. One more time, I am also going to include a link to the most recent episode of the Victorian Variety Show in the notes as well, and there will be a new episode of that out next week, and a new episode of Marissa's Wicked Word Nosh out two weeks from today. So until then, thank you so much for listening and for all of your support and encouragement. I really enjoyed doing this episode, even though I feel like I was all over the place, and I hope you got something from it, because I think this is a really rich area that can definitely be explored and needs to be explored. I think there's so many works of art out there that need to have something said about them. So please, go out there, check out some ephrastic poetry, write your own, and let me know what they are. 
I gave you that email. Please, let's do it. Let's go write some ekphrastic poetry. So until next time, take care of yourself, stay safe, and peace out. This podcast is written and produced by Marissa Dele Farfalle and brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Learn more at www.anchor.fm.